Good morning. <clears throat> the scripture for the lesson today would be taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. You'll find that in the Pew Bible in front of you at page 1071. Again, that's Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. And it reads, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Amen. Two weeks ago, we began this series called Membership Matters with the intent of understanding what it really means to be a member of the Lord's body. And last week, we, we consulted that idea of placing membership to understand what that means in the context of the universal church as well as a local congregation. And this week, I want to turn our attention or start turning our attention to certain aspects of the life of the church body that has to do with membership. And the first thing I want to talk about is fellowship. Now, I want to begin with a story I heard about an elderly woman who frequently made trips to her local post office. And on one particular occasion, she arrived there, and there was a really long line to see the clerk. And while she was standing in line, they had a postal employee out in the lobby who came by to see what everyone needed. Because it was his job to direct them to that automated machine out by the uh, post office boxes if their need could be matched by the machine. And when he approached the elderly lady, he found out that she needed to buy stamps. So he encouraged her to go over to the automated machine where she could purchase the stamps quite quickly, quite easily, and not have to stand in line. But the elderly lady said, I'd rather stand in line and wait to see the clerk because the machine over there, it's not going to ask me about my arthritis. The whole point of that is this, that we were made, we were designed, we were created for human contact. And that's why fellowship matters. Fellowship matters, Oops, excuse me, I'm going to skip ahead because I decided to change the order of some of this. Fellowship matters because it's how we build relationships. And research shows that building relationships is essential to spiritual maturation and congregational growth. Dr. Flavel Yakely, who was a church growth statistician and the director of the Center for Church Growth at Harding University when I was there as a student, he conducted research that drew this conclusion. Converts who remained active in a church longer than six months developed an average of seven friends in the, their church. But converts who dropped out before six months only developed two friends on average. In other words, Dr. Yakely showed that whether or not a convert, a new convert, will remain faithful is largely influenced by whether or not he or she develops intimate relationships with other members of the body. And as one church growth expert said, a church that focuses on helping new converts make friends within the church will be more likely to grow. That's why fellowship matters. But what do you think of when you think of fellowship? 
Maybe you're like me and the first things to come to mind are ice cream socials and holiday parties and potlucks. Maybe you automatically think of those social gatherings that we do outside of our regularly scheduled worship services and Bible classes. But is fellowship just a social event or is it something more? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. It's here that Paul said these words, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The focus of Paul's instructions in this passage are on the idea of fellowship, which he equates with partnership. He kind of uses the words interchangeably here. And the message that he's presenting to these Corinthian Christians is that as a Christian, you are not to be in partnership, you are not to be in fellowship with unbelievers. But to help his readers understand what fellowship is, he used a metaphor. And the metaphor he chose to use for fellowship was a yoke. Paul compared fellowship to a yoke. Now, a yoke is an, a tool. It's an instrument used to link two animals together so that they can work in unison to pull an object that might otherwise be too heavy for one to pull alone. A yoke brings two oxen together so that they might benefit, they might benefit from one another. And that's the mental image Paul wants us to have when we think of fellowship. Fellowship is a bond. Fellowship is a union. Fellowship is a partnership. You see, the Bible does not talk about fellowship the way we talk about fellowship. We talk about fellowship as an activity, like a meal at the church building or a gathering in somebody's house. But the Bible talks about fellowship as a relationship. Look at what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. Here he reflected on the events that unfolded back in Acts chapter 15 when he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas on behalf of the church in Antioch to deal with some issues related to Gentile converts. There in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas met with the elders of the Jerusalem congregation as well as the apostles to address whether or not circumcision would be enforced on Gentile converts. And at the conclusion of their meeting, all agreed, according to Acts chapter 15 and verse 25, that the Gentiles should not be required to be circumcised. And according to Paul, this agreement was visibly demonstrated when James and Cephas and John, who he identifies as pillars of the church, when they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. What does that mean, the right hand of fellowship? Well, in, that, in the, the language of the Greek New Testament, the right hand of fellowship was an official agreement. It was a visible demonstration of association with, trust in, and support of one another. That this hand of fellowship meant that they were yoked together. It meant that they recognized each other as partners with a common purpose. And when you become a part of the body of Christ, that same right hand of fellowship is extended to you. 
That's because if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, as John declared in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. It's automatic. It's part of discipleship. It's part of membership. Fellowship is expected. Fellowship is relational unity. Relational involvement. Relational cooperation. But what does that really entail for you and I? Well, first off, true fellowship entails devotion. The problem today is that all too often we don't recognize fellowship as an essential part of our assemblies. When we talk about the essential aspects of the assembly, we tend to focus on those activities in which we are to engage when we assemble. So sometimes we treat fellowship as though it's important, but not essential. When we think of the essentialities of assembling, we think about worshiping God. We think about partaking of the Lord's Supper. We think about praising God in song. We think about praying. We think about giving of our means. We think about those so-called acts of worship. And rightfully so. We see those as essential. We see those activities as mandatory. We see those things as non-negotiable primary objectives of our assembly. And at the meantime, we relegate fellowship to a different category. Most of the time we view fellowship as purely secondary, as optional, as something we do if we have extra time. And this is evidenced by the failure of a great many of our number to prioritize presence at all of our congregation's gatherings. But Scripture places a higher priority on fellowship than that. Going back to our Scripture reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we are told four things to which the church in its infancy, in its earliest days, were devoted. The church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, we are not surprised to find the apostles' teaching on that list, a reference to the studying of God's Word as communicated at that time by the apostles. We're not surprised to find prayers on that list because every Christian is expected to pray, to communicate with God in that unique way. We're not, we're not surprised to find the breaking of bread, which is a reference to the Lord's Supper, to the uh, communion, the memorial that we partake of. We're not surprised to find those things on the list. But did you notice the second thing identified as that to which the church in its original state was devoted? It's fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. It doesn't mention worship. It doesn't mention stewardship. It doesn't mention discipleship. But it does mention fellowship. The church in its original state was devoted to fellowship. And I think the reason the church was so devoted to fellowship is because it is the only aspect 
of our assembling together that necessitates our involvement with other people. I want you to think about something with me for a moment. I want you to think about how unique fellowship is when you compare it to the other acts of worship. Can you praise God all by yourself? Can you worship him in song all by yourself? The correct answer is yes. And hopefully you do. Hopefully there are times you find yourself praising God in song, not just because you're gathered here on a Sunday to do so, but because the praise of him just comes to your lips because that's your heart's desire. Can you pray to God all by yourself? Absolutely. And if you're not, we need to have another conversation. Can you study God's word all by yourself? Certainly. In fact, you can listen to good gospel preaching all by yourself. Thanks to the internet, you can go online and study anytime you want to, all day long if you want to, because there is so much content available for you to ingest. Can you give of your means all by yourself? Yes, you could sit at home, fill out a check, put it in the mail, send it to the church building. Or now you can just go to PayPal and send that money straight over. I can't wait till we put chip card readers in the pews. So you can just pull out your credit card and... The best part is we're going to have a spot on there for tips to the minister. And if you have a family over five, gratuity is added. That's the Leibengood rule. <laughs> but yes, you can give of your means all by yourself. Now let me ask you this. Can you observe the Lord's Supper all by yourself? Now, don't misunderstand the question. I'm not asking should you or is it theologically acceptable to. I'm asking can you. Can you take a piece of unleavened bread and can you take the fruit of the vine and consume it all by yourself? Yes. Should you may be a different question. But can you fellowship all by yourself? No. You can't do it. And we learned this the hard way for about three months in 2020. Some of you recognize that image on the screen. Some of you know what my living room looks like. Because for 11 weeks, you worshipped with that on your screen. And in 2020, for nearly three months, we sat in our homes and we praised God virtually we studied the Bible virtually. We prayed virtually. We gave virtually. And we observed the Lord's Supper virtually. The one thing we couldn't do was fellowship. And that Sunday we came back. 
That Sunday we were back in this room, even though we were spaced out with blue tape everywhere. It was glorious because we got to fellowship again. The greatest benefit of the pandemic, in my opinion, was it reminded us just how wonderful and how special and how beautiful fellowship is. But it's three years later, and it seems some of us have forgotten just how important fellowship is. And that's why Scripture presents fellowship as an essential aspect of our assembly. One of the reasons we assemble is so that we can be together. From the formation of organized religion under the Mosaic Covenant until now, God has intended for his people to function as a collective entity. He did not design the Israelite religion nor the Christian faith to operate solely on the individual level, but instead designed and demanded a corporate level to it. That means that in order for us to be disciples, we have to fellowship with other disciples. You cannot be a disciple in isolation. In order to be a disciple, you have to fellowship with other disciples. So let me ask you. Did you come to the assembly today with your acts of worship? Let me rephrase that. Did you come to the assembly today with your five acts of worship, or did you come to the assembly today with your fellowship included? Some of us will leave here today thinking we have fulfilled all that God expects of us simply because we sang and we prayed and we listened to biblical teaching and we partook of the Lord's Supper and we made a financial contribution. But some of us will leave here today without having contributed to, enjoyed, or reaped the benefits of fellowship. The truth is that you can be in the presence of a congregation and still worship alone because you refused to fellowship. There is an essential part of our assembling that is just as important as the preaching, just as important as the singing, the praying, the giving, and observing the Lord's Supper. Just as essential is my fellowship with you and your fellowship with me. Fellowship entails devotion. But you know what? Fellowship also entails consideration. Turn with me, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read a little chunk out of 1 Corinthians 11 right now. We're going to start in verse 17. And I ask you to try to follow along with me as we go through this passage. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command, commend you in this? No, I will not. And after this chastisement, Paul recounts the institution of the Lord's Supper. He then offers this solemn warning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He follows that up by these instructions in verses 28 and 29, which apparently disappeared. Oh, no, they're there. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And one last set of instructions appear in verse 33 and 34. So then, my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, we often quote this passage in conjunction with our observance of the Lord's Supper, as we should. However, it is very easy for us to make the overarching, to, excuse me, to miss the overarching point of this passage because it's so intertwined with this memorial. See, when you really study this text, you'll realize the Lord's Supper is not the primary topic. The primary topic is actually fellowship. Five times in these verses, Paul uses the phrase, when you come together. That's the focus of the text. That's the emphasis. That's the thesis of what he's saying. The Lord's Supper is the example Paul uses to show them that their coming together is not for the better, but for the worse, or as another translation says, does more harm than good. Their coming together does more harm than good. That's the issue. According to verse 18, Paul had heard that there were divisions among the congregation. No, duh, Paul. You said that back in chapter 1. Why are you repeating yourself? He's not actually repeating himself. Back in chapter 1, he said there's divisions based on the teachers people were following. Here, in chapter 11, he's going to point out there's a different reason for their division. The divisions here in chapter 11 are not along the lines of preferred preachers. They're along the lines of class consciousness. To understand what's happening here, you need to know that in the first century it was commonplace to not only observe the Lord's Supper, but also to share a common meal when the church came together. This is what Jude called a love feast in the 12th verse of his book. And it's similar to what you and I would call a potluck or a dinner on the ground or a fellowship meal. So when the Corinthian congregation assembled on the Lord's Day, they observed the Lord's Supper And they shared a common meal. 
But when Paul said it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat in verse 20, he was making the point that they were failing to correctly observe the Lord's Supper because they were failing to fellowship during the meal. What apparently happened is that the wealthier members arrived before the poorer members. Poorer members who had to work when they could or had to work when they were told. And so they may not have been available as early to meet as the wealthier members. And as a result, their wealthier members went ahead with their own meal, as Paul indicated in verse 21, instead of waiting on everyone to be present so that they could fellowship as one body. Additionally, scholars suggest that the wealthier members supplied the bulk of the food at these meals and did not take into consideration those who weren't present when the meal began. As a result, the wealthier members ate until they were full and did not leave anything for those who could not arrive as early, resulting in one going hungry and another getting drunk, as Paul said. And what was meant to be a time for fellowship actually created division because the haves were inconsiderate of the have-nots. And so ultimately the problem in this scenario, it wasn't the activity. It wasn't the fact that they had a potluck, a love feast, or a common meal. The problem was their attitude. One commentator put it this way. The way the Christians were observing the ordinary meal, making distinctions based on socioeconomic levels, was making a lie of their claims of being one body, a oneness symbolized in the taking of the Lord's Supper. In other words, their employment of class distinctions created an atmosphere of disunity in the church. They were disunited in their observance of that common meal. So when they claimed to be united around the Lord's Supper, it was a fallacy. That's what Paul seems to be calling out here. But what does that have to do with you and I? What does that have to do with today? The point is that some of us are rich in fellowship. We have friends galore. We're invited to more activities than we can attend. For us, fellowship is easy. We can come into this building, sit in our pew, surrounded by our people, talking about our topics And we don't have to go looking for fellowship because it just seems to find us. And some of us are poor in fellowship. Some of us are rarely, if ever, experiencing fellowship. And before you conclude that a lack of fellowship is the fault of those who are poor in fellowship, consider some possibilities. Maybe someone is lacking in fellowship because they are visiting this church and they don't know anyone yet, but they are searching for a church home where they can be a part of a family that will care for them. Maybe someone is lacking in fellowship because they are new to the area. It could even be a college student, a young professional who's away from home for the first time and needs people to reach out to him or her so that he or she feels welcome in an unfamiliar environment. Maybe someone is lacking in fellowship because he or she is an introvert 
or extremely shy or doesn't know how to initiate contact. And they struggle to build relationships. But they are more than willing to socialize, more than willing to engage when they are approached by another. Maybe someone is lacking in fellowship even though he or she is a long-time member simply because he works odd hours that cause him to miss services and activities or because she's busy taking care of an aging parent and unable to be present as much as others. Here's the point, or better yet, here's the challenge. Those of us who are rich in fellowship need to be mindful of those who are poor in fellowship. Be careful not to gorge on fellowship to the exclusion of others who are starving for it. Instead, make yourself available for fellowship. Initiate fellowship. Offer fellowship to those who have little or none. Instead of expecting those who are fellowship impoverished to feed themselves, provide nourishment for them. Maybe this is the way we can fulfill Paul's command in Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 to practice hospitality. See, this morning, I want us to understand what fellowship is. It's relationships. It's building intimate relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I also want us to understand what fellowship requires. Fellowship requires our devotion. It can't be something that we leave on the periphery. It can't be something that's optional. It can't be something of second importance. It has to to be considered just as essential as every act of worship because it is an act of worship. And we need to understand that fellowship is something we provide each other. That some of us, fellowship comes naturally to, and others of us it doesn't. And if we want to follow the instructions Paul gave that church in Corinth, We're going to have to be considerate of one another, spreading the fellowship around so that all feast on it. This morning we talk about fellowship because it is, in fact, essential. It is how we build one another up. It is how we hold each other accountable. It is how we grow the church. If you're struggling with fellowship, we invite you to make that known. If you haven't been devoted to it like you should, and you've been keeping it arm's length away, we invite you to repent of that. And if you're not part of the fellowship, we encourage you to join. And you can do so by putting on Christ in baptism today. This morning we extend the Lord's invitation because we're in fellowship with him first and foremost. If you have any need to respond to that invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.